Welcome to The Nature Photographer on Wild and Exposed, your source for the behind-the-scenes secrets of today's top photographers working in wildlife, conservation, and fine arts. The Nature Photographer is produced in collaboration with NANPA, the North American Nature Photography Association. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to the latest episode of the Nature Photographer podcast brought to you by NAMPA and Wild and Exposed. Today we welcome Jennifer Lee Warner. Jennifer is the committee chair for NAMPA's ethics committee, so we will delve into what that means, what they do, and NAMPA's ethical field practices. But first, let's let's do a little catch up with everybody. I think everybody's been pretty busy, so Jennifer, tell us a little bit about what you, you've either been out photographing or what you enjoy photographing. I know you're in California, so... Things are always up and down on what what you can access these days. So I've been spending a lot of time close to home like everybody else around here. But um, I've been documenting uh, marine mammals in La Jolla Cove, specifically um, trying to target um, wildlife harassment and working with some organizations to come up with solutions to mitigate wildlife harassment. Um, particularly in that area because it is one of the only inland um, rookeries for both harbor seals and sea lions. So there is direct access to baby, um, like newborn seals and sea lions. So I've been spending a lot of time documenting both the animals themselves and people harassing, people working to end harassment, um, and spending a lot of time underwater. This this past year, I've been diving underwater to, to capture what the sea life looks like um, from all angles. Oh, fun. Yeah. yeah, I got all kinds of questions just out of that intro right there. So when you're underwater, <laughs> what does that mean? Are you uh, just snorkeling and that sort of yeah. thing, free diving, or are you out there completely under? Yeah, I, I'm in snorkeling. Um, I'm a really, my, um, what I'm attempting to get is, um, so the sea lions, they, they are resting there along the shore. So they will be swimming in just a few feet of water at times. So I'm trying to get over under, particularly um, images that is showing how close people are to the sea lions and swimming and they're completely oblivious just to how close they are to these mammals that are swimming under the water. So that's what I'm trying to get. Then, so what does that mean? How do you shoot that? Do you shoot that with uh, underwater housing or are you using GoPros or what, what is the best tool for that job? Yeah. So I'm using an underwater housing. Um, I don't have a very expensive gear, which I think is really important for people to know you don't have to have a $2,000 water housing to do something like that. Um, I'm using a die pack bag. So it's just a bag that my um, SLR can go in and um, yeah, I'm just getting, you know, both in the water, I can go above the water with it or those over under shots that I'm looking for. So what kind of lens do you use? I'm using a 24 to 70 um, with that. So I'm getting, um, essentially they, they get a pretty close to you. So in the water, um, harassment is a totally different thing when they're on land, when they're on land, they're trying to, um, arrest, thermoregulate when they're in the water, they have complete ability to approach you to leave. They're super fast and they're very curious and they're used to people. So just standing just off the shore, getting into the water, they will swim right by you. They they're very playful. They're wrestling in the water just right, right there. So I don't need a very long lens to do that. Right. And I think that's an important distinction, right? 
that harassment thing because it is it's and I think we'll get into that topic a lot more as we talk about ethics but if an animal's approaching you and they're totally comfortable and you can read that behavior that's cool but if it's the other way around where they're apprehensive and you can tell that and you're still trying to get close then you've got the ethics yeah. And it's just about knowing your subject and what is happening in that situation that's really dictating whether or not it's harassing or not. So do you find with the pandemic that there's a lot more activity with people being outside in SoCal? Just When the pandemic first started, they actually closed all the beaches in California, or at least in Southern California. So um, it was it was like the much needed break that all these marine mammals were looking for. It was like what we'd ideally like to see is people having roped off areas. So you could still go, but you couldn't access the beach. You couldn't get down to where the animals were. There was police tape. Now there it's all open and there's a lot of people out. There's not much else, you know, people in California, they're used to theme parks and, and concerts and all these big things that we have. And now that we don't have those available, you know, we don't have, you can't go dining, um, either indoor or outdoor dining now. So people are spending a lot of time in nature and it is getting a little crowded down there. It's a double-edged sword, right? Because it's good for the education, but then it can be love it to death. Yeah. It just comes with, People having proper restrictions on what they can and can't do, and the education to know why. Hey, before we go too much further with that, let's. I want to know what you're doing in Louisiana there, Don. <laughs> <laughs> Not too much, actually. The, um, yeah, I most of what I photograph are big mammals, and there aren't too many big mammals down here. The you see alligators every once in a while, but it's a little chilly for them right now, so you don't see them this time of year. And deer are really hard down here. It's there's so much cover. I mean, I always joke that, you know, things grow on things down here. It's just, um, so I don't know. There's a lot of birds, you know, in the wintertime, they just get so many birds down here. And we've been having, um, you know, with everything going on with the pandemic, we've certainly all learned how to kind of stick close to home and see new things. And we come down here every winter. So, you know, usually I go to some of the parks around here looking for birds, but this year I've actually set up a blind in the backyard around some berry bushes and, set up some feeders and things and it's just we've had wax wings and cardinals and you know, birds that I just don't see that much in Colorado. So that's been kind of fun. That's awesome. So uh, do you get out every day? They still miss the big mammals, but But yeah, this is the best time to miss the big mammals, right? I mean the winter is like it's cool, but you get this far into winter and it's not as cool. I always like the snowy scenes, you know, you know, elk and moose out in snowy scenes before they drop their antlers. But the, um, yeah, the birds are definitely fun down here. You get out on the beach. We haven't, I've done that a couple of times. I stopped in Texas on the drive down here and stopped at a couple of places there and um, found a, a white, I think it's called a white morph reddish egret. That was, that was a lot of fun. Spent some, a morning with him. White morph reddish, what? Reddish egret. Is that the actual name or is it just a morphing stage of that bird? No, I think it's actually a, you know, like a, a color that they that some of them just have. It's not it's certainly not as common. So the they still have the pink on the beak, but the rest of their feathers are all white. So you get that out on you know, and I take my skimmer pod out and crawling around in the in the sand and water and you know, kind of some of the same things that Jennifer's doing out on the beach. You know, to really kind of get those low angle 
angle photos. And then while you're doing that, and then you get a lot of the other, you know, the sandpipers might start coming up and some of the, there were some great, um, yeah, great egrets out there and great blue herons. And so they start, other birds start getting a little bit more comfortable with you. And I'm fascinated by the pelicans down here. I love photographing the brown pelicans. Um, actually, La Jolla is another good spot for photographing them, but down here, they're just, it's been a chilly year this year. So it's been kind of interesting to go out and, you know, catch them kind of early in the morning with some fog around them. Um, two days ago, we had a little bit of ice and kind of like an ice fog that happened. So they had kind of this glistening look on the back of their, back of their feathers, which is really kind of cool, but they're just, they're kind of clumsy looking, but they're, you know, in other ways they're pretty, they, you know, they fly really smooth and it's fun watching them. I don't know if you've ever seen them, they plunge dive for food. And that's always kind of interesting to watch. What, hold up, before you go too far, what's a skimmer pod? So a skimmer pod, basically think of a frying pan with the handle taken off. And then in the center, there's, I've got a, a um, like a really short tripod base. Um, I forget what the actual piece is called, but it's got, so that I can attach my, the foot of my camera lens to it. So I'll use my 500. So it's basically like a frying pan that, and then my camera only sits maybe about four inches off of the surface. So you lay down, so you actually lay down in the sand, you can push the pod along and you can, um, one, it keeps your profile kind of out of the way. So the birds don't see you as much of a, of a threat versus, you know, this big, tall, you know, five foot five person coming along up on a, you know, a four inch little bird. Um, so you kind of crawl along the sand and you push your camera along that way. And it gives a really nice low angle. It really blurs out the foreground and the background. So it doesn't float. Um, no, probably not with the camera on there. It's probably not a wise thing to float a 500 millimeter lens across the water anyway, right? No, no, but you certainly can take it. I mean, I've done it in the real shallow water right along the edge of the, you know, as you know, where the waves are crashing. I've done that where I've gone right at, cause that'll create a really nice smooth blue, like a bluish color in the foreground. You know, or you can, you know, basically anything that's on the beach, any shells, any, you know, objects that might be kind of in your, you normally would be a, a distraction in the, in the foreground of a photo. Now all of a sudden really blur out because you're down so low. Give us or send us some pictures for the show notes. Cause I want to see that skimmer pod. And then also that, what you just described with that foreground kind of stuff, that'd be good examples for people to see. Sure. We can do that. So Jason, you haven't said anything yet. What have you been up to? I think I've been trying to just, I'm on mute. So <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, I haven't been up to a lot. I mean, I've been busy, but just not a lot from a photography standpoint. Uh, been able to get out a little bit here and there, but not much. It's editing season for me, as Mark always says. So <laughs> I've uh, I've just been trying to get through some editing stuff. But We were joking before we started the podcast where being in Louisiana or Southern California is kind of nice, right? Because you got some, at least you have some opportunities, well, more opportunities than what we find in Colorado and and Utah. I still miss the winter, though. I like you know, snowshoe hares and snow, and I'm always looking for ermine and, or fox pouncing around in snow or something. I like the cold. You said you stay down in Louisiana. Are you down there for till the snow's gone, or do you come back like in March or something? No, we, we come down for a co- just a couple of months. So we usually come down with um, my boyfriend has family he, that he's from down here. So we come down, stay, come down here for the holidays, stay with them. 
and then spend maybe another four or five weeks down here before we head back. Sweet. All right. That's all the questions I had. <laughs> Till we get into this ethics thing. So, Jennifer, you head up NAMPA's ethics committee. The ethics committee has a charge of gathering, disseminating, and promoting information on ethical issues involving nature photography. So that's our formal description. What do you describe it as? <laughs> uh, good question. So um, the ethics committee is really about educating um, photographers and anyone really who is a wildlife enthusiast on um, how to create ethical pictures. So um, creating guidelines through truth and captioning documents, um, creating um, field um, procedures, just not necessarily saying what you should do, but giving guidelines for people to start thinking ethically in the field. Essentially, we want people to start questioning themselves is, you know, not I should or shouldn't do this is what is happening in this situation based on what I've learned and how can I, uh, how can I create images that are not um, changing the behavior of my subject or damaging my subject in any way. So do you have a pretty good positive response to that? I feel like these days with cell phones and so much information out on the internet for people to find, whether it's a wildlife subject or the best wildflower location. I know in Colorado, we've just seen an inundation of, of more and more backcountry destinations that used to be kind of off the grid for a lot of people are now becoming a lot more accessible because of the ability to learn about them, the ability to um, share the information with other people. You know, everyone's posting things on, on social media these days. So, you know, what kind of response do you tend to get get from people around this? Are they positive about it or are they pushing back yeah i i think it's a it's a double-edged sword there's a lot more people who like you said that are creating problems um because these these locations that may not have been widely known in the past are becoming very accessible to people um like the super bloom we had in california um a few years back they had to completely shut down that entire area because people were just traipsing through the wildflowers to get their selfies and everything. And, and so I think the problems are becoming more and more um, prevalent, but when you start to discuss these issues, you, I'm seeing more and more people desperate for this information, not necessarily knowing they were causing harm or, um, that any of these things were in fact an issue. So I think people are eager, eager to learn and I'm seeing a lot of positive feedback from the information that we're delivering. And I think it's just about getting it out to the masses so that people know what, what they're doing is wrong and, you know, encouraging them to start wanting to do the right thing. Years ago, I did, um, I've been trained on teaching the principles of leave no trace. And this is kind of, you know, similar along those lines. And I remember one of the things that we talked about is that we didn't want to be the fun police. We didn't want to <laughs> stop having fun. We still want to encourage people to be out there and learn about nature and appreciate it and be a steward for it. Um, so I know that's, that's kind of a big, big part of this is it's not, don't do it. It's doing it a little bit more respectfully and being a good role model for others that might see you out there too. Absolutely. And I, and I definitely don't say that there isn't 
any one of us, me included, who haven't done something that later you go, oh, maybe I shouldn't have done that. But just the fact that you're starting to think about whether you should or shouldn't have maybe approached a subject or, you know, went off trail, just having that thought process is already a step in the right direction. We just want people to be very cautious of what they're doing when they're out there. I think another point to that too, is that it's not just, you might be one person and say, well, it's just me. I'm not doing that much of an impact, but if you do it and then the next person does it and the next person does it, it's that cumulative impact that I, that ultimately has the, the biggest effect. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And you know, anytime you're going out, especially when you have really nice equipment, you are essentially giving permission to everyone who's watching you to do it. You know, they think you know what you're doing. So if you've you know, started to approach a, a moose or, you know, get too close to a bear, then they're like, well, that person obviously knows what they're doing. So I'm going to do it too. Well, a lot of those situations too, it's so hard because, you know, in a lot of these national parks, there's a uh, distance regulation, right? And if you're carrying a, what do they call it? Uh, Jason, what is that? Um, rangefinder. If you're carrying a rangefinder, you can be dead dead on and you know, okay, well, it's 50 yards to a whatever, of deer. Well, if you have your rangefinder, you know. But most people do not perceive that distance, right? And it depends on how far away you are, how close you are. I mean, there's all these things. So I think it's, while the if you're down there and you're totally 100% legal, I think it goes back to exactly what you just said. What is the perception? Whether you're legal or not, is this image that you're going to get worth that perception of, oh, hey, it's okay to do this. You know, and I, and the other thing that I caution people too, is even if you are following a regulation, let's say it's a moose and you're staying 25 yards away from a moose in Grand Teton National Park, but that moose is in rut, he may not have the same behavior than maybe when it's not rut season. And I've seen you know, a, a group of photographers standing out in a field with a moose and they are standing just about that legal distance and he, they were charged because he's trying to, you know, woo his female and she's not liking all those people that are standing 25 yards away. So you have to know what you're doing and understand the situation. Even if you are following the the guidelines, you need to make sure you understand your subject no matter what you're photographing. I think too, the perception's a big part of that. It's, you know, sometimes, you know, you have people out there with everything from a cell phone to maybe a 600 or an 800 millimeter lens that can really get in a little bit closer. It's the perception of somebody might see that photo later and say, oh, well, I want that same photo, but all I have is a cell phone. And reminding them that it takes a little bit more than a cell phone to get that frame filling shot. Absolutely. And I know that's something that, you know, within Nampa, we talk about that, about, you know, truth and captioning and, and being honest and reminding people about how a photo was actually obtained while you were out in the field. Yeah. And I think you make a good point when someone says, well, I have to break these guidelines because this is all I have. You don't have to get that picture. <laughs> you know, that's a privilege to get that picture. And, you know, those people who are capturing those images are working really hard. They're going above and beyond to be ethical just because you can't, you know, get the permission to enter an area or have the right gear, then take a different picture. 
get get a, a wider angle shot that's further away that's getting the landscape take something that is within the range of of ethics it's something i always teach you know when i take people out for workshops i do workshops in rocky mountain national park and i tell people that all the time if they all if all they have is a wide angle lens and they want to get the elk it's like can we get closer and i'm like no you really don't want to get closer i was like how about we take a step back and actually look at the scenery now you have a focal point with that elk in this majestic scene with all these mountain peaks and you know in the in that photo in the long run is probably going to be a little bit more of a wall hanger than than the full frame face portrait absolutely yeah it's interesting you know you guys just made me think of one of the things i've and i guess it's i think it's actually in the rules in the national parks guidelines for for most uh you know um <laughs> treating animals property, whatever, keeping your distance, all that stuff, right? So you have the guidelines of the 25 yards or the 100 yards for bears and wolves and things like that. But the other key factor there is to, if you're if you're modifying the animal's behavior, then you're also not within the guidelines. So you could be 25 yards away, and if you're modifying that animal's behavior, then you're you're too close. So there's, there's, I think that other little caveat there is something for all of us to keep in mind. You know, if we're, if we're modifying their behavior in any way, then we are, we are interfering with what they're doing and that's a problem. And that's so subjective, right? Because if you don't know the animal history or you don't know the biology, you don't even know if you're modifying the behavior. So to your point, Don, I think it's really important if you are just dead set on getting a particular image in a particular place you might be way better off going with a guide because they do know that behavior and they can tell you, oh, we're totally cool. This is totally, I do that with bears. I shoot bears all the time, but I still, 90% of the time, I'll go with a guide just because I know that those guides know those bears. They know the behavior. They'll know good bears from bad bears. They just, it just makes it so much easier. And I think I can identify that behavior most of the time, but I just still feel like it's, you know, you always got to put the animal first. And if you do that, and if you, however you're going to do that, whether it's hiring a guide or having that, knowing that situation or spending tons of time before you ever try to get a picture, it all works. You just got to figure out what works for you and be patient. Yeah. Patience is definitely a big part of it, but it's also remembering and not just with wildlife, but with any living thing out there, you know, whether it's a flower or a tree or, you know, it, allow it to have the ability to get to the next generation. You know, if it's wildflowers in Southern California, you stepping on them to get a better shot with, you know, with your cell phone is then preventing that, that patch maybe from, from seeding and regrowing the next year, which now you can't, you know, it has an impact. And it's, and I think that's all it is. Like I said earlier, it's, it's not so much being the fun police. It's not saying don't do it, but just think about what you're doing and think about the impact that you're, you're creating on that that area or with that animal um, and what future changes it might be creating. One of the things that always comes up for me uh, every spring or late, late spring, early summer is when the new baby fawns are out, you know, and their, their defense mechanism is just to lay low and just, you know, not move. Right. So, a lot of people say, oh, this is a perfect opportunity because I can march right up there and that animal's not going to move and I can get this sweet shot. But what they don't realize and what I think it just it's it's just education. You're creating a scent trail right to that spot. So whether a coyote comes along or a mountain lion or whatever and doesn't even know that that 
fawn is there, but all of a sudden they get this different scent and they're like, hmm, I'm going to follow this little scent trail of whatever you left on your shoes. Then, you know, it can create a problem that you don't even know and you will never even see it because you'll have got your picture and left and an hour later, you know, there's a problem. I think that's the mindset that we're trying to get people to change is that once they get their picture and walk away, they, they never think of that animal ever again. It's like that moment is over and now their existence doesn't, you know, register in their mind. And got to understand that these animals have lives before you got there, after you got there, and everything that you did will have an impact on their life. I think you, what you talked about early on when we first started the podcast, you said, wildlife harassment when you hear when i hear wildlife harassment i'm like so it's such a negative right so it's good because you've got to kind of get the point across but it's more like wildlife education because essentially that's what's going to fix the problem and it's just super important to put that and and we're partly we're a huge of response a huge amount of responsibility on our part to provide that education so it kind of leads into your truth and captioning, but it also is, you know, the images we take will hopefully educate beyond, you know, like, what are you doing when you're taking these pictures to protect these, the sea life that you're protecting? At what point do you turn that into education or how do you turn that into education? You know, with educating people, it comes from a variety of of resources. It's anytime I'm posting on social media, it's giving some context to what we're looking at and why we're seeing what we're seeing. It's, um, you know, working with legislators and understanding why we are closing down beaches. You know, that area um, has been a hotspot for controversy for many, many years because they want to close down beaches in order to have, um, sea lion or seal pupping season because they get flushed into the water when people are trying to approach them for pictures. Um, so having, you know, that education come from, from everywhere, from just speaking to people about what they're seeing when they're there um, to signs that are there that are posting the differences between a seal and a sea lion and why they react differently when you approach them. I mean, everything that can be done with a photograph it should be connected to some sort of education. So can you describe or uh, define truth and captioning and what that is? Yeah, truth and captioning is, um, in a nutshell, it's whether you're using it within the metadata of a picture um, or in the actual caption when you are posting either in a publication, on social media, in an art display, wherever this picture is being posted, that you are having context to what you took and how you took it in order for the viewer to have a greater understanding of what they're doing in order to have them not replicate it without understanding. Um, we break it down into essentially two parts. It's how you took it and what you did with it afterwards. So whether or not this is a image that was taken in the wild or whether it was taken in captivity, making sure that you are um, describing that, that's essentially very important, as well as did you manipulate it after the fact? Did you take out, you know, multiple animals? Did you add animals? Did you change the scene in any way? And having that information is going to educate somebody from trying to replicate it without knowing what you were doing when you took the picture. 
picture. And that totally speaks to this whole internet world or social media world where it's like, I want to get that shot. You know, I saw this shot on Instagram or I saw this shot on Facebook and I want to get that shot. If it's captioned properly, the person might be able to just determine right there. Uh, yeah, well, I'm probably not going to get that shot because I don't have an 800 millimeter lens or I don't have, you know, whatever the situation was or it was modified in post-production to look way better than it actually was when it actually was taken. And when um, photographers are going out into um, closed locations with special permission and they have a guide or they're going with a biologist and they're using camera traps or any of these special tools that are giving them access the average person um, doesn't have, but they don't explain that, then when people are trying to replicate those pictures, which inevitably someone's going to do, they don't have that information and they are doing harm or they're accessing areas that they shouldn't without the understanding that those pictures were taken under special circumstances. Yeah, again, it goes back to that perception thing. You really have to think about moving forward. What are people seeing? Are they? And unfortunately, I don't know if people always read everything too, but you have to make the effort. You have to try to, you know, at least be upfront with, with how that was captured as a photograph. And, and then, like you said, what was done with it afterwards, you know, was it cropped in half, half percent, you know, a 50% crop on, on that image. So it makes it look like it's frame filling or, you know, there, there's so many different ways that, that that perception can be there. And it's just a matter of being honest about it. Well, your whole thing in the beginning too, that perception of wildlife harassment is one thing on the beach and it's a completely different thing in the water. Right. And you've got to just describe that because my thought when you started describing that right in the very beginning, it's like, well, how can you be shooting with the 24 to 70 in the water? Because that means you're going to have to be pretty close. And but if you use a 24 to 70 on the beach, that's you, you are that's harassment. If you're using it in the water, that's not necessarily harassment because these animals are kind of curious and they are going to approach you, but you're not modifying their behavior. It was their choice to, to approach you. Right. And you'll see on land, you're not going to see a sea lion just, you know, approach a person on land. That's not something that they're going to do. But in the water, they have that control. So it comes down to whether you're photographing sea lions or photographing bears or whatever it is that you're photographing. You need to have some sort of understanding of what you're looking at so that when that behavior is happening, you know how to act. Some of the coolest stuff nowadays and, and the technology that's out there is the camera traps are kind of cool, right? And that is going to, you know, if you really have your heart set on getting a certain image, well, and I say camera trap as in like a trail camera or something that's very tech technical as far as operation. But now you can set your little phone out in a field on a little tripod and I don't know what the distance is, but I know I can take a picture with my watch. I can control my iPhone at a distance away with my watch. So there's, there's opportunities to be a little bit creative to try to get some of those images that you wouldn't necessarily get by standing there or laying on the ground with the camera in hand. You can sometimes remove yourself and then that's a lot less obtrusive to the whole situation. Yeah, there's a lot of opportunity with this advancing technology. And as long as the person who's putting out the camera traps also understands 
the subject that they're trying to capture, you know, they're not using intense flash. They're not putting it in in areas that may be attracting predators. You know, you're not, if you're putting a camera trap near a, a nest and its flash is going off, you might be, you know, luring other things to it. So still having an understanding of what you're doing, but removing yourself and being able to set up a camera without you having to be there, it's a whole game changer with capturing images of you know, mountain lions or, you know, these elusive small cats in India. I've seen, um, you know, these these pictures that are being made that you would never be able to get just standing there with your camera. Uh, so are you guys, you're creating pamphlets? Is that what I'm understanding? Or is this just like, um, how does this education get out? I guess is what I'm asking. What does it look like and how does it get out? Can you give us an example of one? Yeah, so um, on the NAMPA's website, we do have an entire section that's dedicated to ethics. There's a couple different guidelines that are um, just PDFs on that um, that section of the website, which is the truth and captioning, and then our ethical field guides. Um, but we are also, we have several podcasts, or not podcasts, excuse me, webinars that have been conducted, um, blog posts that have been written, and um, and we're coming out with a a very, um, very thorough ebook that will be coming out later this year. I'm looking forward to actually that, that handbook coming out. It's, it is super comprehensive. We've got, you know, the content's getting there. Um, you know, it's just a matter of getting it designed and laid out, and, but it has some just amazing information in there that's going to cover everything and anything related to to ethics, you know, truth and captioning and, you know, how do you handle underwater scenes and how do you handle, you know, landscape type things and, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah. Does it, oh, sorry. Does it get into like specific wildlife situations? I mean, not, I mean, like, you know, different critters, you know, like elk specifically or, you know, ungulates, for example, small game. I mean, I'm just curious. How does that, how does that look? Yeah, we've broken it down um, into uh, particularly like birds, mammals, um, reptiles, amphibians, um, invertebrates. So it doesn't break it down to specific animals because it would just that would be so difficult to have a, a species specific. But it really does cover different situations. Um, and I was very impressed in particular with the experts that we got with the um, invertebrates because there are so many different handling things that you would never think about with, you know, just picking up a, a lizard and, you know, taking a picture and putting it back and the harm that you can do and something's, you know, in those um, species that are so delicate. And it does get into details like that. Um, but we also cover not just species, but situations um you know, like Don said, with um, landscapes and, you know, making sure that we are not harming um, specific locations as well. So there's a lot of information in this book. It's very comprehensive. And and we, being NAMPA, um, since Jennifer and I are both involved with, well, all four of us are involved with NAMPA, but we're, Jennifer and I are both involved with getting this out out into the hands of people, but we're excited because it's, it's going to be free. It's not going to be something that we want to charge. We want to get it out into as many hands as possible. So the plan is to, you know, look at different organizations that we can provide it to and different, you know, associations and community organizations and, you know, pretty much anybody that's interested in getting this out into their community, 
so that we can really get the word spread about it. Because there really isn't anything today that exists that's this comprehensive. You know, there's bits and pieces in different locations, but we wanted to make this a, a really, really in-depth look at how to handle almost any situation other than getting to the level of, like you said, with specific animals. But, you know, from a level of, you know, how do you handle a landscape? How do you handle, you know, desert surfaces? You know, there's a, a crust layer and I'm drawing a blank on the name. Cryptogramic soil. Yes. Um, you know, that it takes a long time for that to come back. Or tundra. You know, tundra is, is very susceptible to foot, you know, heavy foot traffic. And so it's, it's definitely something we're looking forward to putting out. It'll, it's been, as Jennifer said earlier, it's, it's been several years in the making and we're finally at a point that we, we can say it, it is coming. It is a, it is a true living thing. Yeah. And there, there's been a lot of people who have put a lot of work into it. Um, you know, we've made sure that we are tapping into as much um, expertise as possible. We wanted to use people who have, the best knowledge of these subjects um, so that the information was as accurate as possible. Does it have a, uh, I'm just thinking here while you guys are talking and I don't use too many eBooks, but I'm assuming it would be something that I could just download on my phone and just have on my phone. Right? So if it's something like that, then if it's an eBook too, you could have links in there. It'd be super cool if it had a link to like, regulations in Yellowstone National Park just to those immediate species like bison and elk and moose and bears and just knowing the distances or just knowing the fact that you can't stop a car you know within I don't even know if that's a rule or not in Yellowstone I don't shoot there but you know just stopping a car 25 yards away from a bear is not that good but if there was I'm sure the park service has some sort of page on their website with regulations. So one of the things that we really wanted to do, and I'm really proud of how this book has, um, has um, changed over the years, is the, um, the concept of, of hyperlinks. So not just a very comprehensive resource list, like you said, which will be in there, but also links that will be attached to further information. So blog posts and webinars and all sorts of training that we can have as a living document that can be continually updated as new information comes up. I mean, particularly with something like drones, it's changing so frequently. It's impossible to keep putting out guidelines for drones, but a document that's living like this, that the links can be continually updated. We can keep updating our information. So that'll be in there. It's going to be, I'm pretty excited about seeing it coming out. So like I said, it, you know, the plan is to make it free. It's, it is something that, you know, it's funded through NAMPA membership dues. It's funded through, you know, money we raise at different events. Um, you know, so it's, it's being completely funded internally so that we can offer it out to the community as a, as a benefit. So with it being free, how do people get it? My understanding, at least at this point, is that it'll be available on it definitely will be available on our website for download. It will be a PDF. We've looked at, and this is still kind of all in the works, but we have looked at, you know, different ways that we could maybe make a print version available of it for different organizations. And we'll figure that out as, as the time comes, once we know exactly the you know, final page count and that kind of thing. But it definitely will be available as a downloadable PDF. And that kind of goes back to what Jennifer's saying, that that allows it to stay a living document, because as soon as you print it, then, then you're kind of limiting to, you know, that moment in time. 
It's almost like an app, right? It's almost like an app that would be, I mean, we need to get one of our listeners out there that's an app developer just to donate a bunch of time and create us a, a really cool app that it's, because this is, tends to be like a bummer downer subject. And I don't, I'm never that guy out there that's going to yell at somebody. But if there's something that I see and there's an opportunity after, I'm not going to create a scene, but after this situation, I might go up and say, hey, you know what? This might have been a little bit better if, if it went down like this. And we try to talk about it in the podcast too. So it's not this heavy handed, like, don't be an idiot, but more of like, hey, did you think about this? You know, you want it to be fun. I'm wondering what you could put into it that makes it almost fun. I don't know. I don't know what it is, but there's got to be something that makes it something that you seek out and not something that you find out after the after you mess something up. Yeah, that was going to be my actual question was, you know, do you guys have do you guys talk about that in there too? you know, how to how to approach a situation cuz I think we've actually talked about it before Don on the podcast uh you know, kind of how to, you know, what what do you do when you see something like that going on and I'm a lot like Mike. I don't like to you know, it's not okay to just get in people's faces and create it. You don't want to be the the fun police, right? I mean, that's very, very much the case. But when you see a situation, it is up to us to kind of try to plant those seeds, right? And to so there's got to be a way to do that without creating anxiety and anger and all the other good stuff that goes along with this subject. So, <laughs> yeah, you know, being a role model is definitely one way. You know, by sure. doing it the right way, and then other people. Jennifer mentioned it earlier too that you know others then observe what you're doing. So it's kind of that you know, indirect kind of passive way of, of saying something to people, but you're kind of holding back. Um, because yeah, we don't want to create a conflict situation. We don't want to, you know, nobody ever likes to be told what to do. Nobody ever wants to be told that, you know, you really shouldn't go out there, but it's, you know, rather than saying, don't do this, it's, it's keeping it positive and saying, well, this would be a better option, or this would be less impactful on, on the subject that you're photographing. And I, I learned, unfortunately, the, the hard way that approaching people in the field is not the most effective tool to educating people. People are very defensive. Most of the time that situation is not going to end well. But there are, like Don said, being a role model, um, I've observed photographers. I A lot of what I do with my photography is photographing the situations, which is sometimes very difficult to just watch a situation and play out and just document it, whatever's happening. But I've also witnessed other photographers doing amazing work to educate people, including I was watching a a seal give birth. And um, this is a very delicate situation because as soon as that baby's born, if it's the mom is flushed into the water, she'll abandon the pup immediately. And so um, she was on a, a public beach and I watched a photographer literally just draw a line in the sand and stand there explaining to people why they shouldn't cross the line that she drew. And just watching other people do this, it was like, you know, you plant the seeds, you educate and you just watch other people use those tools. And and that's what it comes down to. It, telling one person stop doing that is not as effective tool as finding ways of educating the masses like we're doing. 
It's, you know, I find people, you know, it's kind of like why we all love watching, you know, BBC Earth and just, you know, nature shows on Discovery Channel. We love watching this because we learn about nature. We learn about animals. We learn about different locations. Well, here's an opportunity, you know, if it's on a public beach, you know, for example, or if it's elk and rocky during the rut or any number of, you know, 399 up in Grand Teton with her cubs and, you know, just the unbelievable crowds of people that have been following her around of, you know, teach them why that behavior is or teach them, you know, why, why those animals are doing those things. And you'll find that people start asking you questions and they realize that you can answer them for, for them and that you understand what's going on with the animals. You know, people get curious. They want to learn about these animals. It might be the first time. It might be the only time they'll ever see them. You know, and they can kind of go home and, you know, talk about the experience versus, oh, you know, what somebody told me not to do. You know, it's, again, it's keeping it positive. It's, you know, finding a way to, just like Jennifer said, just to educate them and rather than lecture them. I find the best way is avoid those crowded places, right? (laughs) You know, or go in the times of the year when it's not as crowded. You know, and that does a couple of things. They get you pictures that not everybody else has, but it also, you know, the crowds aren't there. So you don't have to worry about, there's always crowds in the very popular places, but that perception thing is so huge. You know, I just won't do, I know if I have a situation where I'm going to be legal, but the perception is totally not there. I just, I forego it. It's just not worth it. And I think that would be the ideal situation is just that every photographer avoids any location that's popular, but it's not a, it's not a realistic situation that everybody's going to do it. And, you know, I, I was recently, um, a, a stranger messaged me just a couple of days ago and I thought this was a really good opportunity. He, um, expressed that he was angry because every time he sees a snowy owl picture, he assumes immediately whether or not he knows or, or doesn't that snowy owls are harassed because everybody is out there and approaching the snowy owls on the East coast. And, and he doesn't even want to post pictures of snowy, snowy owls because of that perception. And I said, well, don't not post your pictures, explain why it's important not to harass them. Use that platform, that opportunity to tell people about it instead of, you know, taking pictures and never sharing them, use it as a way to educate people. And that's what I encourage. And that's where that truth and captioning comes out, right? That is just yeah. the perfect place to use it. Totally. So what kind of questions do you get a lot of? Because Jennifer, you speak a lot you know, about this particular topic to different organizations. And so what kinds of things do people either ask about or are they most confused about maybe? I'll get, I mean, even photographers who've been doing it a long time and they're very ethically minded, I almost get a lot of more questions from them saying this situation happened and I wasn't sure what to do. Did I do the right thing? Which I mean, who am I to say yes or no? But um, just the fact that you're asking already is telling me that you're you're having that animal's best interest in mind. Um, But I get questions anywhere from, um, you know, uh, for example, I had a person recently say, um, well, I was wanting to set up a camera trap um, under a bird feeder. So I'm getting other animals coming to the the seed that's being dropped under the bird feeder. That's not considered baiting, is it? And I'm unfortunately, in, in my 
in my opinion, and it, ethics is a gray area. There is no black and white, in my opinion. Yeah, you put bird feed there. It fell to the ground. You technically baited those animals. So not saying that you harmed them and not saying that you shouldn't take a picture like that, but understanding where that line is drawn. You know, if you're taking pictures of bugs that are eating carnage and you're finding dead animals and putting it out and then documenting the bugs eating that, you still baited, <laughs> you know? So those are the questions I'm getting, particularly from people trying to be very careful on how they are describing what they're doing. And, um, you know, a lot of it is, it's truth and captioning. And how do you caption something that like that? And is it ethical to photograph an animal that you essentially altered that behavior to begin with? So those are a lot of what I'm getting. It becomes a very deep subject. <laughs> it can be. Yes, <laughs> it, it does. And, you know, and like I said, it's, there is no black and white answer. What is ethical to me, and it may not be ethical to Vaughn and, you know, vice versa. And, you know, people are very passionate about this subject as well. And, you know, a lot of people have their very strong opinions and not everybody agrees. And, you know, you can't just say this is right and this is wrong. There really isn't that fine line. It's just lots of shades of gray. And as long as you are putting that subject's best interest in mind and, and really doing your education to make sure that you are doing what's best for that subject. And, you know, that's all we can ask really. I hear that a lot that people say, well, every, everybody's going to think they're ethical, that the way they're doing it is ethical. So I think what, you know, what we're trying to do is just try to come up with some, you know, a basic set of standards and guidelines and ultimately, it's just keeping in mind being a role model. You yeah. think of how think of how your actions are impacting what you're photographing, and think about how others are seeing what you're doing. And would you be comfortable with either seeing somebody else do it that way, or knowing that somebody saw you do it that way, and then they might replicate that that behavior? You know, the other thing too to think about is, <clears throat> let's just say elk. Photographing an elk in some of the Canadian Rockies and then photographing an elk in the Colorado Rockies, they're two different elk where, where it might be ethically okay at one spot because the animals are more habituated, you know, just don't have this blanket kind of thought on the species because they might be totally different somewhere else. I see that with moose a lot where, you know, you, you you have a situation that is totally fine in one area and you go to another area and yeah, you, you don't even want to. Yeah. Well, and also understanding that all animals are individuals and they have their own histories and their own experiences and they will react differently too. Um, you know, Don mentioned Grizzly 399 and Grand Teton. She is a bear that's extremely tolerable of people and that is how she has managed to survive. But recently, her um, her daughter, 6'10", she's been charging people. So those are two bears that are actually related who have had very similar lives. And you don't act the same way around those two bears. But you need to know the difference and, you know, understand that they are individuals and they are going to react differently. And it comes down to respect, too. You're, I mean, you know, we're, you know, that's 399's home. That's 6'10's home. And we're... 
just kind of, you know, not to sound kind of cliche, but we're just visitors in their territory. It's, um, you know, we have to remember that, that these animals are trying to survive out there and they are, you know, it, it broke my heart in some of the photos I saw of 399 with the crowds of people. And she's just trying, she's got, she had four cubs and that's a lot of cubs for anybody. And she's an older mom and, you know, she did a great job. She got them through the whole year and they went off to, to den for the winter, but, you know, to see all those people and, and, and her behavior showed it. I mean, she wound up in different areas that she really hadn't, hadn't gone before. And I think part of that was an assumption, you know, I'm just making an assumption. I'm not a biologist and don't know for sure, but it seemed like it was, you know, maybe a little bit of pushing and, you know, all right, let me see if I can find some places where there aren't so many people around. So, you know, again, it's just thinking about those impacts. Yeah. Well, even a matter when um, I did go out and document her and, you know, I was seeing what what essentially people were doing is they're parking on the side of the road and waiting for somebody to spot her. And then they would just, you know, pounce (laughs) everybody hound her, you know, wait till somebody spots her. And on the last day I was there, she popped up like everybody is waiting where she they're expecting her to pop out. And she popped out right behind her and just walked past everybody. Nobody saw her. Luckily, I had, I was on my way to leave and I I happened to see her and I didn't I didn't tell anyone I saw her because I'm like, you know, she went around everyone on purpose because she wants to avoid that. So she she with when I saw her, they had relatively small cubs and she crossed the river, which talking to some veterans are like she would never cross the river I'm like, well, she did. And she probably did it to avoid all these people who are standing there waiting for her to come out. So, you know, like you said, it was very evident that she was altering her behavior and they do, you know, they, they are trying to just survive and care for their young as best they can. And anytime that we're interfering with that is where that ethics conversation starts coming up. Yeah, absolutely. It's, and there's so many situations like that. So. Oh, yeah. you know, and each, each one's a little bit different and you have to, you know, just like you said, you have to think of every bear is going to be different. So, you know, some are not going to be as tolerable as others. And yep. yeah, yeah. You know, I've just been thinking as you were talking, I, I really like the approach you guys are taking on this because I do see a lot of folks out there that are, I don't know if the right words preachy about it, but they're very adamant that there's a right and wrong way. And it's definitely their opinion, right? And they push that really hard, and I think that pushes people away and turns people off. Um, and that doesn't educate, you know. And I, I, you know, it might be an opportunity for those folks to really think hard about their approach and the way they look at things and view things and share the information. Um, doing it in the way that you guys are talking about is absolutely way more effective, I think. And it gives people everybody's in their own journey. Everybody's going to get to a different level of ethical behavior based on their experiences and time and education and all those things, right? So I think. I think that's a big piece of what you guys just said. And I think that's a, a vital part of the way you guys are doing it. But. And I think in, uh, when you talk about 399, you know, put yourself in the position of being a park ranger that has to manage that. And when you have a park ranger that has to march in and just uh, squash everybody's fun, I mean, and people get so mad at those rangers for just like telling them, being told to move on or whatever. It's, it breaks your heart because you want to get that shot, right? But just know that their ultimate goal is to make sure that these animals keep surviving out there and they're not in those wrong situations or get put in, you know, feel like their back's against the wall and they just have to do something like charge somebody or just scamper off. You know, just cut them some slack. 
in every national park. You know, it's it's just um, you know, whether you go to Yosemite for Firefall or you go to Grand Teton for moose in the fall, or you go to Grand Teton for bears in the summer, or you know, any number of places, you know, fall colors in on the east coast, you know, in October. It's you know remember that these people are, are just doing their jobs. They're just trying to protect the resource. They're trying to make sure people stay safe. They're trying to make sure that the animals can go about what they need to do. And um, some are a little better than others. I, I do agree with that. That sometimes that you know some can be a little bit more direct. And but <laughs> but they are doing. It's a tough job. You know, I, I see it firsthand in, in Rocky that you know beginning of the summer everybody's kind of positive and gung ho, and by the end of the the summer season they they look a little frazzled. I had a situation in well. A lot of the ways that I approach that, and this, it's different everywhere you go, right? But the example I'm going to talk about is in Denali National Park. And it's, you know, if you go into Denali, back in the day, we had a photographer's permit where we could drive our cars in there and not have to ride the bus. So it's a total, it, that situation doesn't even exist now. But I think the, the principles about what I'm going to talk about still exist. I would always approach that where... I tried to come up with a really good relationship with the rangers because you knew for those 10 days or those 14 days, you were going to run across these same people over and over and over. And if you start out on the good fo- good side and you're respecting all the rules and doing everything and actually even pointing stuff out that, hey, I saw a bear over here or I saw this here or whatever, they love having that information. And then it kind of flips around. They'll help you out eventually too and you get this really good positive relationship as opposed to charging out there doing something wrong and you start out on the wrong foot in the in a situation so keep that in mind too if you can if you can get there and you have enough time it's oftentimes just good to to start out with a really positive experience with a a law enforcement or a, a authority person that is going to regulate a lot of the situations that you end up in no, definitely. And, you know, and say thank you. You know, if they ask you to move, you move. You don't question it. And that has always been something that I've advocated for, you know, even if you don't agree. I mean, there has been situations where you're like in the perfect spot and they're like, move. And you're like, but one picture. But, you know, you just you do what they say, because like you said, it's you know, they have only that animal's best interest in mind. And if you start making them mad, they're going to make your life <laughs> not well either so. and that you know and again that's being a role model i know one of the things that i'm really adamant about is any national park i go to i make sure i'm parking in a designated parking area i'm off this off the road because in the long run if they're going to ask you to move it's going to be the people that are not parked in the right spot so more than likely if you, you know you might have to walk a little bit farther but you know wear comfortable shoes and you know and bring your jacket and your water with you and um yeah, it, you know, nine times out of ten, if if you follow those rules, just like Mike said, in the long run, you actually, it could actually wind up being a benefit for you. Yeah, and I guess just to finish on that story, we had a, a one year where there was actually a, a, a predatory situation going on, and we had had this really good relationship with this ranger, and when we got th- we got there first, and then that ranger shows up and he sees it's me and my buddy, and then he ob- we're no hard feelings at all. There's no, no, nothing bad at all. And we just start chatting about it. And he's looking at the situation. It was a very safe situation where we were on the road, but what was going on was way off. And it was, 
a far stretch for those animals to come to where we were at. And he basically just let us stay, but he stayed with us. And so it, it ended up going on for two days and that ranger was there the whole time. We were there all the whole time and everybody got the most out of it and it worked out really well, but it was all because we had a good relationship to start. If we'd have had not known anything and he thought we were just a couple of jerk photographers, I could see it going south or way different really fast. Well, and I think, you know, unfortunately, a lot of photographers have a bad rap with the rangers at the parks. You know, it seems like they're the ones that are generally pushing the limits and forcing issues and things like that. And that's so there's already a perspective or perception on their part, you know, of if you've got a big lens or whatever, for example, that you might be um, looked at more, you know, differently, whatever, you know, you become, um, you get their attention a lot easier. Um, and I actually, I'm, <laughs> I think Mike's been trying to nudge me along over the last two or three years about just kind of trying to avoid those situations. I, I'm starting to learn to agree more with his, his logic and, you know, theory on it just to, when those crowd situations happen, just kind of step back, walk away, go find something else, you know. But. Mike has that recorded now that you just agreed with him. <laughs> oh, I agree with Mike a lot. Trust me. <laughs> it's hard to do sometimes. It is so hard to do because, you know, you're missing something that could potentially be really good. And it could be, you know, think about it. Some of these pictures could be life changing for you. You get that right picture, it, it can put you on the map. And we talk about that in the podcast all the time. I mean, you get five to ten iconic pictures over the course of your photographic life. And I'm talking just pictures that you're known for or whatever. You know, you could potentially be passing that up. But I've always just looked at it as, uh, all right, I'll just go find that next one or go find that next situation if I'm going to be causing a problem or creating a perception. When you're standing there with that crowd of people, everyone else is getting that iconic picture too. So, you know, you might be better off finding your own unique picture than getting a replica of what everybody else is doing. And that was exactly what I was just going to say was that, you know, when you have a crowd of 30, 40, 50 people standing there, you're all, there's going to be some slight differences in those photos, but for the most part, you have the same photo. You know, do you, you know, if you're somebody that's selling your work or if you're somebody that's entering photo contests and you know that there's 10 other people that just entered the same scene, there's only going to be one that's going to be picked. You know, if you're entering a photo contest and 10 of them are of the same scene of a bear on the elk that happened earlier this year, only one of those is going to get picked. So find something unique, find something that, that stands out, find a different perspective. Maybe it's a different angle. Maybe it's a completely different location where maybe you get a wider angle shot of that same scene or like you do Jennifer where you actually step back and you take photos of the crowds showing you know kind of showing what's going on the dynamics around that particular situation so there's so many other ways that you can actually still take a photograph tell a story um, but it may not be <laughs> the 20 people lined up in the same same white line along the side of the road taking the same photograph I feel like we're kind of beating a dead horse here but <laughs> the one other thing I wanted to add to that was, uh, you know, there could come a day where they don't allow any single car traffic in Yellowstone, you know, where we could all get put on buses. And then, you know, the longer Please we can, don't say that I know, one. I know, but you know, it's a, it's a place that's getting loved to death. Right. And how do you manage that? And it's nobody's fault and it's nobody's problem. It's, it's a collective problem. And, 
they there's got to be some sort of way to manage it but if we're all paying attention and we're all very respectful hopefully that can be prolonged i mean it's something that doesn't have to happen right away but that's some of the things that probably will happen in the future with certain places. I mean, Denali's the prime example with that, but that's been that way for a long time. Yeah. Well, I know in Colorado, there was just another one I just heard about the other day that the trails and certain destinations are getting so crowded and so overused and so loved to death that they're putting reservation systems in place. And the only way that you can get in there is, yeah, if you have a reservation, parking's an issue, um, trail crowds is are an issue, um, but yeah, I just read something the other day that a, down in the San Juan's a popular lake down there that isn't even an easy hike. I mean, it's like an eight, eight or mi- nine mile round trip hike into the Alpine tundra is getting loved to death. I mean, it's just kind of crazy to think that, you know, what once was a backcountry remote area has now become so crowded that they have to put a reservation system in there. <laughs> but that is happening more and more. Yeah, I was actually just um, just reading the regulations around firefall you mentioned earlier in Yosemite, and that's not something you can just go make a day trip out of it and take some pictures because people, um, there were some pictures on the website just explaining that it got so crowded. There was like 2,000 people showing up that they were standing in the riverbed and just eroding everything, and now you you can't really just do that anymore. You have to, I don't know if you have to make a reservation, but you certainly have to it's a reservation. I think the reservation there isn't so much for seeing Firefall, but it's for the road access. Can one of you guys explain what Firefall is? I know what it is, but I think it's uh, there's going to be a lot of people that are like, whoa, okay, what's this all about? Yeah, I'll let you do it, Don. So each February in, Yel- in Yosemite National Park in California on Horsetail Falls, which is um, runs off of El Capitan, that if you get the right conditions for about two weeks in February, you need um, a clear sunset so that you have the the sunlight hitting the it would be the eastern the western facing side of El Capitan enough water on Horsetail Falls, um, and when that happens, the when the water comes down and the sunlight hits it, it bounces off the rock and it actually reflects back into the water and creates like this. It almost looks like liquid gold falling falling down the down the rock it is it's an absolutely amazing scene it took i have been there um i'm sure jennifer i'm sure you you know living in california you've probably you haven't i've never photographed it i've seen yeah. i've seen it not during firefall but it took me four or five years before all the conditions were just right and i don't think the conditions have really been that good since the last time i was there but but it was crowded. It was, um, traffic was horrendous. I think there were people sitting out at eight o'clock in the morning, pitched with a chair holding their spot so they could get just the right photograph. Um, and it, it did, it just got so crowded. Um, you know, there was a lot of promotion around it. There was a lot of talk on media and it is, it's an amazing event. It's, it's absolutely stunning. It's gorgeous. Like I said, it only happens for about 10 to 14 days. So it's not a very long event. It doesn't happen every year. Um, but you know, as a result, it, it kind of became a, this phenomenon that people had to see and, you know, it kind of became a checklist type thing. And I don't know if, you know, that was kind of unfortunate. I saw that when I was there and I think it got worse that, you know, people were like, Oh, I got to see it. And then they moved on. And rather than kind of taking in what they were experiencing, it's, you know, really, truly appreciating it. But yeah, it became this thing of, you know, I've got to get that photograph and I've heard, you know, there's a reservation system for getting in access into that road. 
at that time of the year. There's, I think I had heard that the meadow now at the base is closed um, for that reason, because it was just getting trampled and, and just disrespected. I mean, ultimately, that's what it comes down to. It falls into that category, what you just said, Jennifer, too, right? So we've talked about 399, we've talked about the Super Bloom, and we've talked about Firefall. What are you going to get that 9 million people aren't getting? And is it worth that experience to do that? Or just go find something that's completely different, that is unknown, that you can make your own? Exactly. Yeah, and that's why I haven't done it, because it's, to me... I'm not going to create anything that somebody else hasn't already done. And it's just not worth it, you know, to me to stand in that crowd and be just another person causing a problem. So, yeah. That's why I've been targeting Sasquatch. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I would love to see a picture. So keep at it. Yeah, that's something that's been interesting down here in Louisiana that, um, and I've done a lot of traveling. I've been to all 50 states and I've been, you know, I've done a lot of RV traveling and different things. And yeah, Louisiana, before I met my boyfriend was never really on my radar. And there's some just absolutely gorgeous things down here and it's different and there's nobody around. There's nobody out there, you know, I'm out photographing cardinals or I'm out photographing this, this morning there was this amazing fog and you get these live oaks with all the moss hanging off of them and you know the the fog and the light hitting it so you get all these sun rays coming through the trees and the the moss I mean it's just gorgeous it's absolutely beautiful and there's nobody here out with cameras um you know for whatever that reason maybe I don't know, you know I can make all kinds of assumptions as to why but but so think about that. Think of, you know, how can you do something different, even if it's in your own backyard or someplace different that you've never been to? Or, you know, there's a, you know, we've got, what, 62 national parks now. Well, rather than take a look at the top 10 list, look at the bottom 10 list. You know, what are, those 10 still were, were preserved and dedicated for unique things, too. You know, so take a look at that, you know, the bottom tens, you know, you're not going to have crowds there. You're going to, you know, find, still find amazing things to photograph. There's still sunrise and sunset at all these parks. So, yeah, yeah. And, and it doesn't have to even, even be a national park. I mean, we have beautiful state parks and wildlife refuges all over this country. And like you, like you said, you, there are locations where I've gone out and it is absolutely breathtaking and I'm the only one standing there. So you don't have to be standing in, in Yellowstone to get a great picture in this country, by all means. I think that's a, an excellent place to kind of wrap up our conversation. This is, ethics isn't necessarily a, a super fun topic. It can, you know, as we've talked about today, it can be a topic that can be a little contentious in certain situations. And, you know, so I appreciate everything that Jennifer and the Ethics Committee has been doing on all of the hard work of you know, developing different guidelines for people in the in the handbook that we've got coming out. So, um, so I definitely appreciate all of that work and just keep it up, keep everything, you know, keep it all positive. Right. And when you want to get this book, just keep going to the Nampa website and obviously it'll be advertised there, but we'll also put some links into it when it is actually live. So we'll probably do a blog post that would uh, highlight the, the link or whatever. However you're going to get it, we'll, we'll make it apparent. So, and we'll talk about it on future podcasts when it does come out in the summer of 2021. Right, Jennifer? That is the hope. <laughs> <laughs> Fingers crossed. Yeah. My goal as well. So um, 
Yeah, we will definitely. I mean, I think if if you follow Nampa's um, Facebook or Instagram pages, which are you can find both of those under Nampa Picks P I X. We'll definitely be promoting it there once it's available, and we'll do all kinds of announcements around that. There's also an email that you can sign up for from our website, um, or just follow our website, and we'll we'll keep keep the information coming about when that's going to be released. The best thing is you sign up for Nampa, and then you'll get an email, and voila. We need more Nampa members, so sign up for that awesome uh, organization. Well, and again, you know, like I said earlier, the dues are going towards producing types of things like that. You know, doing the advocacy around. Um, you know, it's not just about teaching people how to take pretty pictures, but the organization does a lot of things for advocacy and copyrights and ethics and you know, all kinds of other things too. That you know, kind of goes on behind the scenes, isn't quite you know at the forefront as much as some of the other things we do. But but that's a big part of why why the organization does exist. Jennifer, I want to thank you for, for bringing all this great information and guidance on here. Um, I know you and I have, have been out in the field to do some shooting and we've, we've had conversations around some of the things we observe. So I'm sure we will do that again. Um, but it certainly has to be stewards of our world and to be advocates for positive change. So I think we, we can each do our own little part in all of that. So to learn more about NAMPA's ethics guidelines and to get involved, visit NAMPA.org. We'll have that, that link in the show notes. And to get more information about our ethics guidelines, you can go to our website under advocacy menu and then click on ethics. And that all the information that Jennifer mentioned will be listed there. Um, all the info that we've talked about today will be included as show notes. We'll get some information from Jennifer. She does a lot of um, speaking. So if it's something that you want to have her come out and speak to your to your organization about. She'd be happy to do that, I am sure. Okay. Um, so you can find more information about her photography and book her for your organization at experiencewildlife.com or find her on Instagram at experiencewildlife. So I wanted to thank everybody for joining today and for listening and sticking through our difficult and hopefully positive conversation around ethics. Um, Definitely be sure to subscribe to the Wild and Exposed podcast to get all the latest episodes of the Nature Photographer podcast and Wild and Exposed. 